Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So Jeremiah comes at a good time because as it's been mentioned, we are in the middle of Advent. And Advent is a season of waiting on Jesus. And therefore it's a season of longing. It's a season marked by tension. It's a season in which we pay attention to our spiritual hunger. And Jeremiah the prophet in his book speaks to all of these things. And so I'm excited for Jeremiah to help us wait on Jesus this season. But before we do that, I want to quickly get the big picture of Jeremiah with you all. Jeremiah is the second longest book in the Bible behind the Psalms. But it's actually pretty easy to summarize. And that's a surprising thing. We just need, I think, to summarize and maybe get a big grasp on Joshua, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah. We, I think we just need to grasp three things. And I'm going to put it this way. I'm going to say duty, dynasty, and a date. This is how we're going to sort of, before we dig in, get a grasp of this giant book. And so first, duty. We need to grasp the duty of a prophet. We take this for granted, but what is the duty of a prophet? Well, the duty of a prophet is to deliver God's word through speech and through symbolic action. And so on the one hand, God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet and therefore bring powerful and hard to forget symbolic action to God's people and especially God's kings. And so in this book of Jeremiah, we see him breaking clay jars on the ground. We see him burying and digging up a loincloth and then wearing that. We see him wearing a heavy ox yoke on his shoulders and walking around town. We see him pursuing a life without marriage. God even tells Jeremiah at one point to stop praying for Judah. Symbolic action. But God mostly speaks through Jeremiah's words. And so in chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, you could look. In chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, I set you apart before you were born. I set you apart before you were born. Before you were even knit in the womb, you were a prophet to me. And Jeremiah replies, no thanks. I'm too young and I can't talk well. And the Lord replies by touching his mouth and saying, look, I have put my words in your mouth. And then in verse 10, if you look in chapter 1, we get a summary of these words. We get a summary of God's message that is to be spoken through Jeremiah. And it's one coin with two sides. Think of it this way. It's one message with two sides. On the one side, God will, and here it is in verse 10, uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow. Destructive words. And on the other side of this message, of this coin, God will build and plant. And this, in a nutshell, is Jeremiah. Some even divide Jeremiah into two parts. Chapters 1 through 24. Jeremiah is roughly 50 chapters. It's 52 chapters-ish. And 
And so what you see is you see in the first half, 1 through 24, is a section of uprooting. If you're a gardener, this is taking the plow and uprooting everything that is there. And the second half of Jeremiah is replanting. Again, if you're a gardener, this is when you're on your knees and you are replanting saplings and seeds. And in chapter 25, in between these two halves is in in many ways a hinge. Half of it sort of points to the uprooting and the other half points to the replanting. And so duty, the duty of a prophet, that's the first thing we need I think to keep in mind. I think the second thing that we need to know in order to grasp Jeremiah is what I'm calling dynasty. See, this mission or this duty of prophet that Jeremiah is given is not in some vacuum, but it is specifically in a court, a dynasty. And and it's specifically David's dynasty. And if you think that sounds like a cool job, think again. He was beaten. He was imprisoned for the crime of just saying things the kings didn't want to hear. And of course, the kings had all kinds of prophets around them saying things they wanted to hear. And so Jeremiah had this double struggle. He was delivering God's message of destruction while there were other prophets claiming to be prophets saying, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Carry on. And so the third key that we have, I think, that grasp Jeremiah this morning is a date. And that date is specifically 586 B.C. 586 B.C. Will you say that with me? 586 B.C. Remember that date. Memorize that date. I had a prophet's professor who said every Christian should have this memorized like they have memorized John 3.16. 586. This is the year that the unthinkable happened in God's story. Babylon sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, pulls the king off his throne, kills the king's sons, his heirs, pulls out and gouges his eyes. It's shocking. 586 is a date in history when God uses an evil empire, Babylon, to shatter and scatter his own possession. This is a significant moment in history. 586. And it's not the storyline that we're expecting at all, is it? I mean, if you've been with us since our journey at the beginning with Genesis, we learned the shape of God's story where God rescued a people from an oppressive empire. 586 comes, what's happening? They're back in the chains of an empire. We read how God gave them land as a restored Eden. And what's happening? 586, they're east of Eden again. We read how God built a house for his name, the temple, and now that temple is burnt to the ground. We read how God gave them a forever throne that will bless the nations, and now that throne is absolutely gone. So if God is crafting this story, which we believe him to be doing, 586 feels like a moment in which God highlights and drags the cursor all the way up to the beginning and presses delete. That's what it feels like. Pages and pages and pages of loving story writing. Gone. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright compares this moment in God's story to the time that his sister tearfully watched the garden that she lovingly cultivated for 40 years get bulldozed for a parking lot. Could you imagine 40 years in the garden? 
and watching that thing get bulldozed for a parking lot. That's what's happening. Actually, I think it's impossible, actually, for us to fully appreciate how traumatic the state 586 is and was to God's people. It leaves us wondering, if, if God has given up on his rescue mission, how much more would it leave them thinking the same questions? It explains why Jeremiah, as a, as a book, is so scattershot and raw. If you've read Jeremiah before, you know what I'm talking about. One scholar says, quote, This book reads more like what political prisoners and refugees write than what persons writing in settled places and times produce. And that's Jeremiah. That's Jeremiah, a political prisoner and a refugee. And this is Jeremiah in three words. Duty, dynasty, day. Jeremiah, his duty as a prophet to the dynasty in Judah during the traumatic date of exile. What does this have to do with us? And that's what we're asking in this table read sermon series. We're saying, okay, we want to grasp the drama of God so that we can play our part well. How does Jeremiah inform our lives today? Well, let me just pray before we explore that question. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer? The Holy Spirit, would we not just learn new information? Would this not just be some kind of dry Sunday school, but instead would it be a time in which we, we actually encounter you, Jesus, through Jeremiah? And then we worship. Lord, we want to we worship you. Jesus, you wanna be, we want you to be more lovely. We want you to be more beautiful. We want you to be more compelling than you are right now in our lives. Use your word to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in my experience of my life, in my short life, there are two kinds of change. There's comforting change and there's confusing change. You know the difference? So the comforting change is usually the welcome change. It's the expected change. It's the anticipated change. It's like reorganizing your living room. You, you love the change. You're, you put effort into the change and it's here and you're glad and you're enjoying it. And then there is confusing change. Confusing change is unwelcome. It's unplanned. It's confusing change because after the dust settles of all the change, it leaves you, what? Confused. It leaves you disoriented. It leaves, leaves you, really, in a lot of ways, lost. After my dad died recently, I received a text from a friend. After saying sorry, this friend said to me, I imagine losing your dad is like losing the roof on your house. Another friend texted me and simply said, when I lost my dad, my world changed. It just changed. Both of these comments, I think, perfectly describe my experience of loss, and maybe yours as well. It's not a comforting change at all. It's a confusing change. And to add to the confusion, this confusing change in my life happened in 2020. Quite a few changes in that year, if you remember that year. Or are we all blocking that year out? <laughs> I know I'm not alone. Uh, this half decade has felt like a half century, hasn't it? With, with all of the change that's happening. We may not have moved, but everything around us feels like it's moving. Our feet may be in the same GPS coordinates, but everything around us seems to be shifting. In fact, some have compared our cultural moment of confusing change to exile. What is an exile? An exile is a forced absence from home. 
And while most of us are not in literal exile, though much of God's people are today, I feel like, even here, less and less at home. All this confusing change around us might make us feel politically homeless, for instance. Spiritually homeless, for instance. Ecclesiastically, that's a big word for church, homeless. Culturally homeless, maybe socially homeless. It feels like the roof has been taken off of us, from over us. And we don't feel at home, we don't feel comfortable anymore. There's been too much change. We, we have to be, you know, we don't have to be forced from our actual homes to feel homeless. And so what I think what we need is a reliable guide in the midst of the confusion. Confusing change, in other words, calls for a reliable map of the train. A reliable map isn't a fix-all, but it gives us guidance. And so if you walk around an REI store, which I am often doing, uh, just moseying around an REI store, you will eventually find a library of maps for sale. And if you think maps are cool like I do, you would be tempted to buy some of these maps, even if you have no intention of going to the places that the map is mapping out. You might even be tempted to take a few maps, because after all, they just look like folded restaurant menus. Aren't they free? We might ask. When you go into a hotel and you see those like six million folded brochures for things that you're supposed to see and do, you might be tempted to just treat these maps in the same way. But then you look at the price tag, and these maps are shockingly expensive for pieces of paper. They really are. But if you think about it, it totally makes sense. These maps of the backcountry are essential for safety, and they are absolutely reliable. They've been hard won. They're not cheap. And so backpackers will gladly spend the money for accurate guidance. They know their lives depend on it. Well, this is how I want you to view Jeremiah. I want you to view it as an expensive but accurate map to reality this side of the fall. It's expensive because it's drenched in Jeremiah's tears. This did not come cheap. It's drenched, and not just his tears, but the tears of God's people. It's accurate because Jeremiah speaks for God. And it's a map because Jeremiah, his prophecies were compiled. His life of speaking God's word were compiled by a man named Baruch. For God's people in exile. See, God's people were lost in exile. They were lost in Babylon. Everything has changed. Massive change that we will never be able to understand. Massive upheaval that we will never be able to understand. But this people of God needed guidance, and that's what Jeremiah gives them. Jeremiah was giving them guidance to questions like this. How did this happen? Has God given up on us? Is God good? Is his story over? Does Babylon live? Does my trauma have the last word? These kinds of questions. Jeremiah gives us guidance. It's an expensive map for exiles. 
Jeremiah is an expensive map for exiles. And it's clear that God intended this map to be not used just for the exiles in 586, but for all of God's people. It doesn't answer all of our questions that we are bringing to the table this morning. But I do think it reveals enough about God and his purposes for us to put one foot in front of the other this week, this month, this year. And this morning I want to focus on just three things, three aspects to this expensive map. Three things that this map sort of exposes or, or gives us guidance in this morning that might be helpful to you. And those three things are this. God is bigger than we think. Real change is possible. And lastly, the tension is real. So I just want to explore each of these briefly, starting with the first one. God is bigger than we think. And we see this actually, I think, in three areas of Jeremiah's. In the categories of sovereignty, sin, and salvation. So first, God's sovereignty, his sovereign kingly rule, his control over all things is way bigger than we think. And that's the first, I think, mountain that we see on this expensive map of reality. None of the massive change in Jeremiah's life catches God by surprise. None of it. In fact, he's in control of all of it. And we see this everywhere in Jeremiah, but I just want you to hear from Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Babylon, Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand, it says. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken. And so what can we gather from this simple verse? On the one hand, the upheaval brought by Babylon, this massive change that we've been talking about, was in the Lord's hand. It was a cup in the Lord's hand. And we also see that the destruction of Babylon, the judgment of Babylon itself, is in the Lord's hand as he drops that cup to the ground and it shatters. Everything, from exile, to judgment of God's people, to judgment of Babylon, everything is in God's hand. Now this is a mystery, and I just want to name that. What we see in Jeremiah is that humans and empires... And communities are not remote control robots because they are held accountable for their lack of repentance. Okay? Hold that in your brain. And now make space in your brain for another truth. All of it is in control and in the hands of God. Put them in there and live with the mystery. That's my suggestion to you. But do not, do not neglect either. When we do, we get in trouble. And in this case, I think Jeremiah's comforting word to people in exile is, you are not outside of God's hands. It's not as if God is holding this stuff and you're over there. And you can, I can say this to your life too. Everything in your story is in God's hands. As Steve Brown points out, we know God's hands have scars on them. They're good hands. God's view of sin, I think, is bigger than we think. So close your eyes and point to any, any verse, any section in Jeremiah. It's very likely, betting odds are, that you will likely land on a word of judgment. And that word of judgment very likely will be against his own people. Judgment for making peace with sin. Jeremiah, in many ways, is an anatomy textbook for sin. 
If you want to understand sin, what it is and what it does, you would do a lot worse than study Jeremiah. And so just the definition of sin, what is sin? Well, Jeremiah tells us what sin is, not clinically, but with a poetic imagination. Sin is, for instance, rejecting an old, ancient pathway, a trusty trail, if you're a backpacker, a trusty trail that generations of hikers have gone on. Why? Because it's proven to be safe. It's proven to get you where you need to go. Sin is, according to Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, rejecting an old trail for your own muddy path. So 1815 says, they have stumbled off the ancient highways and walk in muddy paths. Sin is rejecting a never-ending tap of clean, healthy water for a nasty, nasty, temporary, gross water tower that doesn't even work. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have done two evil things. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and worse and more inexplicably, they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Cisterns were water towers of the day. Sin is, according to Jeremiah, cheating on your faithful spouse. So chapter 3, verse 6, like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshipped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. If our relationship to God is like a marriage, then sin is like infidelity. And ultimately, we see time and time and time and time again in Jeremiah that sin is depicted as idolatry. So chapter 10, verse 15 says, idols are worthless, but the God of Israel is no idol. And so idolatry, it's been said, is elevating anything in God's creation to God's status. Idolatry, as some have put it, is when we make a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. We take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. We take the good things of creation, whatever they may be, and we make them ultimate. And we decide what these things are and what these things are to our lives. And we devote our attention to it. We give them our heart. We give them our obedience. We even put our trust, as it's been said, in these Good things that God has made. What's the problem? God made them. They are things. And we are designed to worship God. Only when we submit ourselves and our hearts and we find our delight in the Lord do we find full freedom. Anytime we give those things to things that are not God, we are enslaved to those things. And these good things become tyrants. I think you can probably think of a a number of good things in your life that you yourself are tempted to put ultimate trust in. And I bet you have experiences where that may be pursuit of a job or pursuit of this or pursuit of that or maybe stable stabilization of comfort, whatever it may be. When you put all of your chips in it, that thing starts to enslave you and actually stops being good in your life. Well, Jeremiah gives us all kinds of images that describe this dynamic of idolatry. And that's the the definition of sin. I think we see probably even more profoundly in Jeremiah the damage of sin. And what sin does. So first of all, people get hurt. Do you know sin hurts people? 44 verse 7. And now the Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, asks you, why are you destroying yourselves? Sin and self-harm. Whenever we think we're wiser than God, we're actually harming ourselves. But sin also harms others. It tears apart society. So verse 28 and 29 of chapter 5. They refuse to provide justice to orphans. 
and deny the rights of the poor. The prophets give false prophecies, and the priests rule with an iron hand. Worse yet, my people like it that way. In other words, sin is not just personal, but social. It flows outwards. It's like sort of the reckless driver on the highway who causes a pileup. We think that our sin just impacts us and the internal realities of our heart, but the picture that Jeremiah paints is that no, it actually ripples out in destructive ways. So sin doesn't just hurt ourselves, sin doesn't just hurt others, but we actually see from Jeremiah that it hurts God as well. In a book about God's judgment, we can easily miss, I think, the heart of God. But I want you to take a look at chapter 45. In chapter 45, which is a very short chapter, Jeremiah's scribe Baruch is lamenting to God about his terrible life, basically, his terrible ministry. You know, Jeremiah has a bad, his scribe has a bad too. And just listen to God's reply. God says, you've said, Baruch, I'm worn out from sighing and I can find no rest. That's what you said, Baruch. Verse 4, Baruch, this is what the Lord says. I will destroy this nation that I built. I will uproot what I planted. The Lord is essentially saying to Baruch, I feel your pain. I actually acknowledge your pain. And in truth, I feel it more than you do. Listen to what Christopher Wright says about this chapter, chapter 45. Families in Palestine, I'm quoting, have had homes in olive groves that their families have tended for generations, demolished in a few hours by bulldozers. The pain is beyond words. Now multiply that pain by infinity and imagine the heart of God watching the destruction of the vineyard that he has planted. Whatever suffering and pain Baruch feels, and God recognizes that he is indeed suffering, it is a pinprick by comparison with God's. God's anger is soaked in tears. Both the tears of love that had been betrayed and rejected, and the tears of contemplating the suffering of so many people in the conflagration to come. God's wrath comes at the cost of God's pain. And by the way, I think that Jeremiah can be of help to those of us who really struggle with, for instance, if you were with us in in Joshua, some of us struggle with things like the conquest of Canaan. Well, this is the conquest of Joshua in reverse, isn't it? It proves that God does not wink at the sins of Israel while being harsh with the nations. The hard truth of Jeremiah is that it shows that God's holiness holiness is just and it's indiscriminate. God's view of sin is bigger than we think. And then finally, I would just say God's view of salvation is is way bigger than we think. His sovereignty is bigger. His view of sin is bigger, yes. But lastly, his salvation is way bigger than we realize. There is a surprising promise of life in the midst of Jeremiah's ministry of judgment. 
want you to listen to this verse. In 38, verse 2, this is what Jeremiah says. Everyone who stays in Jerusalem will die from war, famine, or disease. But those who surrender to the Babylonians will live. Their reward will be life. They will live. And so Gordon McConville says this passage summarizes Jeremiah's strange message in a nutshell. His is a message of judgment against sin, yes, but ultimately it is a message of salvation through judgment. There is life on the other side of surrender. Did you hear that? There is life on the other side of surrender. When we stop fighting God's judgment... Against our sin, we are strangely in a position to experience salvation and life. As Wilco sings, you have to lose, you have to learn how to die if you want to be alive. And see, if this was true in 586 BC, how much more true is it on the other side of the cross of Jesus where God uses an instrument of an empire... Rome to judge the sins of his people, but this time on himself. See, God's view of sin is way bigger than we realize, but this means God's salvation is as big and deeper. When we stop hiding our sin problem, when we surrender to God's just judgment, and we see it placed on the cross instead of us, we will find life, we will find resurrection on the other side. Because in Jesus, the judge was judged in our place. I'll just be honest, as I'm reading Jeremiah in preparation for this message, I find myself time and time again hearing these oracles of judgment and saying, Whew, glad that's not me. Whew, glad that's not me. Glad that's not me. And every once in a while I'll be like, ooh, this one makes me feel uncomfortable. But the truth is, all of it, all of it judges me. Jesus came and what did he do? He demonstrated that the law is much deeper than we realize. And so I even experienced this verse that I just read to you personally as I was reading this. I'm like, i got to just surrender. And I'll find life on the other side as I see Jesus judged in that place. There's freedom in dropping your arms and allowing the judgment of God to be placed on himself at the cross in our place. See, Jeremiah's God is a true God. And he's much bigger than we realize. Much bigger than we realize. I learned this from Andy Crouch. I learned about the difference between a device and an instrument. I've been thinking about this a lot. A device is like a phone. An instrument will compare it to a guitar. There's your visual aid. This is your other visual aid. A device, if you think about it, is designed to adapt to you. An instrument, on the other hand, doesn't really care about you. You have to adapt to the instrument. So for instance, this guitar is an instrument, not a device. It's awkward to hold if you've never held one before. It's very awkward and maybe even impossible to make sound pretty without hours and hours and hours and hours of holding it and you changing around it. You adapting around it. And it starts to sing. 
A phone, on the other hand, is a device. You can pick up a phone and instantly it's doing what you want it to. Why? Because a device is instantly comfortable. It's undemanding. A device like our phones, they basically morph around us. If we have to morph around that, our phones morph around us. A phone doesn't require anything from us. It doesn't challenge you. It coddles you. And I think too often we treat the thrice holy God of creation and redemption as a device. He exists to adapt to my preferences. He exists to adapt to my concepts. He exists to adapt and make my life a little more easy. And when it gets too hard, and when his truth gets too hard, or whenever anything about him stings or hurts, we upgrade to version 10. And maybe that's all we need to hear today from Jeremiah, that God is just bigger than we think. We need Jeremiah to right-size God, to make him big in our lives again. We will never worship a God who doesn't inspire awe, who doesn't confound us from time to time, or maybe always. We will never entrust our lives to a God who magically conforms to all of our ideals, will we? We need a wild God. We need a God who breaks our boxes. We need the true God. And that's the God we need through Jeremiah. Amen? I think we also need to know this, and these are going to be a lot briefer than this first point. Real change is possible. God tells Judah to repent a hundred plus times. And they don't. When you read Jeremiah, you're just like frustrated. You're like, gosh, it's just the same message and nothing happens. But despite this pessimistic view of the human heart, this maybe this pessimistic view of change, Jeremiah, I think, is one of the most optimistic books that we have in our Bibles about the potential for real change to happen. Here's the difference. The real change that Jeremiah talks about is not a human rock change, but a divine change. It's a change from God, not from ourselves. And we see this in three key areas in Jeremiah. The promise of a new heart, for instance. So Jeremiah tells Judah in four, chapter 4, verse 4, to circumcise their hearts, which is a very strange command. I'll just admit it. But it means, essentially, change your hearts. Change your hearts, because circumcision was an external sign, like a wedding band, of a relationship, like a marriage. And so God is saying through Jeremiah, yeah, it's good you're wearing your ring, but but where's your heart in this relationship? Where's your heart? And God is saying, change your heart. God is saying, I want your heart. Which is all of who you are. But here's the thing about Jeremiah is that God through Jeremiah doesn't just command heart change. He actually provides it. Because, again, we cannot change ourselves. We need God to do that. And that's what we read in Jeremiah 31. I'll put it on the screen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So not just the southern kingdom, but both. That's a surprise already. And it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant, the marriage, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, 
and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so if the old covenant was written on hard stone, this will be written on soft hearts. If the old covenant was broken, this will be upheld from God's people from the inside out. If the old covenant was mediated by broken and even corrupt human mediators, this new covenant will be mediated. That R in the circle, if you've been with us, that R in the circle is the covenant mediator. And this covenant will be mediated by Jesus, who is truly human, representing us, truly God, representing God. Perfect new covenant. Which takes us to the second way change is possible. The promise of a new status. So the promise of a new heart in Jesus. The promise of a new status as well. In 31, 34, the very end of this promise of the new covenant, it continues. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This promise says. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? Why will this intimate knowledge happen? Well, Jeremiah says... The Lord says to Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Somehow we are promised unique intimacy with this holy God that we just read about. How? God tells us through forgiveness. Jesus at the Last Supper says, this new covenant promised by Jeremiah is fulfilled by my death. Where he dies and breaks his body and pours out his blood so that we would experience forgiveness. So that we would experience this new heart that is promised to the full. Let me just ask you, do you beat yourself up constantly? Do you beat yourself up constantly? Do you rehearse your sins and hate yourself? Well, if your trust is in Jesus, if your desperate trust is in Jesus, God, it says, doesn't even remember. And there's a decisive forgiveness, as it's been put by others. A decisive forgiveness. You are completely forgiven. That is the authority of God's word through Jeremiah. You are completely forgiven. Do you need to hear that this morning? You are completely forgiven in Jesus. You are completely forgiven in Jesus. I'll say it one more time because I know you're fighting with that. You are completely forgiven in Jesus. If the judgment of God reflects God's holiness, the tears of Jeremiah, I think, reflect God's love. And it's only in the cross, it's only in the cross where we see both. Jesus reveals the holiness of God and the lengths to which he takes to deal with our sin. And he pours judgment on himself so that we can be totally forgiven. The promise of a new status. And then lastly, the promise of a new king. This is Advent. Our longing is on a new king. We just see that all over the place in Jeremiah. Let's pick out one place. Jeremiah 25.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, think of Jesus, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Ultimately, I think that we real change is possible. If this is a message on the map that is Jeremiah, real change is possible in your life because Jesus, the king, the true king, is your righteousness. 
Jesus not only died for you so that your sins would be forgiven, but Jesus was righteous for you so that you could stand before God in his righteousness. If you are in the circle and he is your R, your representative, his righteousness is your righteousness. You are clothed and you are wrapped in all that he has done for you. He is your champion. He is your king. During Thanksgiving weekend, last weekend, our family was in Cincinnati. And we were gathered around the television, like most of you maybe, uh, to watch the USA World Cup match. Now, I'm talking about last weekend, okay? We're forgetting, we're forgetting yesterday. Um, because it was Thanksgiving weekend, there was this amazing meal above on the first floor where we were in the basement. And, you know, it was just there to be eaten and nobody was eating it. Why? Because we were more riveted by the game. Our hunger, in other words, for the game outpaced our hunger for the feast. Well, that is how change works in the Bible. That is especially how change works in the prophet Jeremiah. We always do what our hunger dictates. And the good news of Jeremiah is that God himself by the Holy Spirit is going to give you new hungers. He's going to give you new hungers so that you hunger the Lord more than you hunger sin. And that is a battle until Jesus returns. That is a battle. But the good news is that it's promised by Jeremiah and delivered in full in Jesus. He gives you a new heart. I just want to briefly mention this last reality. The tension. The tension that a lot of us, I think, feel in Babylon. In exile. Jeremiah shows us, I think, a posture to live in exile. Confusing change is a reality. Yes. What do we do now? What do we do now? And this is the topic of conversation about a lot of people. A lot of people have a lot of hot takes about how to be in this cultural moment right now. And so let's find a reliable guide. Amen? Let's, let's, let's go to the map. I think we see two things. It's complicated. We see two things in tension. Jeremiah gives essentially two commands to the exiles to Babylon that appear to be a contradiction when you read them, but actually I think are a beautiful marriage. So the first thing that Jeremiah says is bless Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 7, Jeremiah says, the Lord through Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, the Lord is repeating kind of the, 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 the mission of God that he gave Abraham and his children and his children after him to be a blessing, to be blessed by the Lord in order to be a blessing to the nations. And so this is a repeat of that. Exile doesn't change your mission, God's people. Exile does not change your mission. When life is hard in Columbus, Ohio, when life is hard, wherever you may be, it doesn't change your mission. We have work to do. Bless the nations. Bless Babylon. And yet, on the other hand, God says in chapters 50 through 51, at the very end of Babylon, of, of Jeremiah, he says, flee Babylon. These are oracles of judgments against Babylon. It's a strange, strange moment because on the one hand, all through Jeremiah, Babylon is an instrument in the Lord's hands, that cup, that bowl that he's holding. And yet at the very end of the whole thing, he drops the bowl and it shatters. Because why? Babylon is against God. And so he uses his people to judge his own people. But then in the end, he judges 
Babylon all the same. And in the midst of this, these oracles of judgment against Babylon, which if you've read Revelation, is just like quoting all over the place. God says, flee Babylon. So on the one hand, God says, bless Babylon. On the other hand, God says, flee Babylon. Which is it? Which is it? Here we need to flex our both and muscles. Amen? Let's flex our both and muscles. Because we are too atrophied in them. And we also too often flex our either or muscles. We have either or muscles. They seem to come at birth. But we need to grow and therefore flex our both and muscles. So we are to both bless Babylon and flee Babylon at the same time. I know that's complicated. And then that calls for wisdom. But you didn't come to hope, I think, for easy answers. <laughs> That's what we're about. Either or is our default. There are, I think, less Babylon people who can like tend to get too comfortable in exile. And they're like too cozy with Babylon. And then there's flea Babylon folks who tend to hide away, they tend to burn bridges, they tend to forget their mission to bless and to have contact with the people they're living with. But what if we embrace the tension? I think we would embody what UVA professor James Davison Hunter calls faithful presence. So our posture in this cultural moment is both faithful and present. You've heard me say this in all kinds of different ways. If you've been with us, we've talked about contact and contrast. We've talked about salt and light. These are all basically different ways of saying the same thing. Faithful presence. So we must, in this cultural moment, in exile as it were, we must be faithful. We must worship the true God instead of idolatry. We must notice the idols of our age and reject them and not worship them. We must wait on the Lord and not get comfortable. We must often say no to things. We don't treat America like a hot tub. We're citizens of the kingdom. And so we embrace political homelessness. We embrace a sort of social homelessness. We are not, we're weird. <laughs> we're weird, as has been said. We're just, we're weird. And don't, and just live with it. That's the flea. That's the faithful. And yet, presence. We are so called to bless and to benefit and to build things. This is the earth, after all, that the Lord is going to, by His grace, renew. He's not scrapping all that He made and bringing a new one in Revelation. No, no, no. He restores and renews this earth that we're living in. So we build things. We plant trees. Both figurative and literal. We don't hide. We don't bunker out. We get involved in the PTO meetings. We get involved in our neighborhood associations. We get involved in the things of this world. We do care about matters of justice. We do care about matters that are going on outside our windows and on our news feeds. We care about these things. We get invested. We get involved. We do all of this. Why? Because we're called to be God's people. We're called to reflect who he is. We're called, yes, to bless, to seek the welfare of the city. Jesus is coming, though, to make all things new. And so we put our hope in him. We don't expect that everything will be, the kingdom will come until he returns. See, faithful presence. That's our posture. So Jeremiah, it's a map. There's a lot of terrain in this map. And I've just highlighted three things. God is bigger than you think. Change is possible. 
And the tension is real. And I just would encourage you to take one of those things. It's a lot of information. Just take one of those things that you need to dwell on in the coming weeks, in the coming month. And let's just ask the Lord to bring it to fruit in your life. Lord, we do ask that you would encourage us wherever we are. If we need you to be enlarged in our lives and in our hearts, would you do that in the coming days? Lord, if we need the promise that real change is possible, that you have given us by your Holy Spirit new hearts with new hungers, Lord, would you do that? And Lord, ultimately, if we are struggling to know our place in this cultural moment, would you encourage us with Jeremiah's word through you? And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.